Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. In his book, Capital Culture, J. Carter Brown, The National Gallery of Art, and the Reinvention of the Museum Experience, author Neil Harris reviews the 23-year tenure of J. Carter Brown as National Gallery of Art director. From 1969 to 1992, Brown transformed the gallery, presided over the construction of the East Building, energized Washington cultural life, and reshaped thinking about museum exhibitions and museum experiences across the United States. In this lecture, recorded on January 26, 2014, at the National Gallery of Art, Harris describes how Brown brought drama and excitement to a heavy exhibition schedule, and for many, personified the glamorous alliance of art and international diplomacy. I'm really delighted, of course, to be speaking today in this place um, about capital culture. Uh, There are hazards uh, to talking before those who may know the subject uh, longer and deeper than the speaker, and I accept them, and I beg your indulgence sometimes for uh, carrying any coals uh, to Newcastle. Before I start, I do want to pay special tribute um, to many in the National Gallery, Um, because, as some of you know, I was supposed to be speaking in October. Um, Something happened here in Washington, um, and all the buildings were closed down. Uh, The National Gallery has really been wonderful in uh, working to reschedule this lecture, which was uh, complicated, as you can imagine, in addition uh, to my wife, Terry Edelstein, working extensively on getting things back on track. But here we are and I want to thank them. I also want to pay special tribute to those in the gallery archives who endured my daily visits for nine months, and then, uh, after that was over, continued to respond to inquiries and visits and requests in the years that followed. Many helped, but um, Najin Daniels, the director, Ann Ritchie, and Jean Henry have been very patient and creative in responding to my needs. Uh, My task was also aided uh, by the gallery director, uh, Rusty Powell, and Liz Krug, the general counsel. I also did more than 50 interviews, and um, to all of them, uh, my thanks. Uh, I also want to thank the uh, uh, institutions that helped support the project, which included the J. Paul Getty Foundation, the Mellon Foundation, and my own University of Chicago uh, professorship. Now, as I've stated, and as you probably know, um, Capital Culture is not a biography of Carter Brown, nor is it a history of the National Gallery or of Washington itself during these years. Uh, But these are three of its elements. And the multiple focus is announced, uh, we hope, by the dust wrapper, a set of stars which enclose people, events, institutions, and objects. It's the connections among them, really, that form the heart of this book. My narrative considers how high art and culture were nurtured by the stresses of the Cold War and the detente that followed it in a city that declared itself, and still declares itself, the capital of the free world. It treats the globalization of museum culture and traveling exhibitions in a place that exploited both of these immeasurably. And it examines institutional history through the policies, the preferences, and the personalities of gallery director J. Carter Brown, and more briefly, the only museum figure to rival him in those years in Washington, Dylan Ripley. When talking about the book elsewhere, it is here that I begin to describe and show pictures of uh, the National Gallery itself. I want to assume that everyone in this audience is so well informed, I don't need to say anything. However, uh, sometimes these assumptions turn out to be unwarranted. So with your indulgence, I will briefly allude to the gallery's larger history and system of government, because both are very relevant to the Carter Brown years. When in the 1930s, Andrew Mellon made his great gift of the West Building and his collection, Washington lacked any great retrospective display of Western art. There had been, in fact, a National Gallery of Art in Smithsonian, 
housed in what is now the National Museum of Natural History. But as you can see, it was a modest and domestically centered affair. In the mid-1920s, that is the mall called Smithsonian Park there, uh, in the mid-1920s, there was an effort to design a new building for it, you see in the upper right, by Charles Platt. But the plans came to nothing. New York, Boston, Washington, uh, Chicago, all had encyclopedic museums, but compared with them, or with great European capitals, Washington was museum deficient. Mellon challenged this and insisted on appropriating the old name, which was given to him by Smithsonian. His gift to the nation, which is seen here opening night, March 17, 1941, was conditional on Congress accepting his terms and committing its support. The new governing board needed some location within the vast federal bureaucracy. Because Smithsonian by then was almost a century old and experienced with collections and exhibitions, it seemed a logical place to park the new National Gallery. But the gallery was to have true independence, that is, the power to appoint its own members and create its own budget. The nine board members, as many of you know, the same size as the Supreme Court, consist of five private citizens and four public officials, the Chief Justice and the Secretaries of State, Treasury, and Smithsonian. This delicate balance was meant to do at least two things. First, to preserve through its private majority freedom from undue congressional interference, and second, through its ex officio members to announce its clear public intentions. Maintenance, or more properly protection, of the balance would lie to a great extent in the hands of lawyers. The gallery was the first major American museum with a general counsel as part of its senior staff. Indeed, the organizing charter mandated this. Here you can see, by the way, the opening night dedication of the gallery, and Paul Mellon is, I think, right there, along with the Chief Justice, uh, Mrs. Roosevelt. Uh, this was a, a great uh, evening event. As I say, lawyers, lawyers were very significant. David Finley, uh, the first director, was a lawyer, an aide to Andrew Mellon. He was almost succeeded in his post by another lawyer, Huntington Cairns. Its formidable senior staff, a sort of ultimate old boys collective, as it were, uh, which you see in front of you, was attorney rich. Um, Congress maintained the gallery and still pays some salaries, but the purchase and acceptance of art remains entirely private. Now, explaining administrative structure is to most of us like watching paint dry. And it wasn't organizational structure that attracted the attention of a 12-year-old Carter Brown, and this is the foundation legend, uh, if you will, repeated often, while driven in a car past the new building, and there it is about the time he was driven past in the late 1940s, he supposedly told his family that he would like to work there someday. No matter that this story was denied by his mother, uh, it nevertheless survived unscathed through most of his director years. It was something like the fictional Dick Whittington hearing the bells of London ring out the message uh, that he would return to become its Lord Mayor. Um, the story's popularity rested partly on the notion that uh, destiny itself brought persons and institutions together. True or not, it certainly should have happened that way. And it was one of many anecdotes fed to the press about Carter helping to make him, along with Thomas Hoving and Dylan Ripley, perhaps the first group of museum leaders to achieve celebrity status. Avoiding uh, too much celebrity and keeping the gallery out of politics was the goal of its first two directors and accounted for its aloofness from modern art. Imitating London's National Gallery in spirit, the National Gallery here determined that nothing could enter the permanent collection until the artist had been dead at least 20 years. 
John Walker, the second director, the man hiring Carter Brown, was actually a pioneer for modernism while a Harvard undergraduate in the 1920s. But Walker had nightmares about congressional reaction if pieces by Picasso, Matisse, or Jackson Pollock were to enter uh, the collection and join the older masterpieces. The gallery relaxed its rules in the 1960s when it accepted the great Impressionist and Post-Impressionist collection of Chester Dale, who is a fan not only of Diego Rivera and Picasso, but of Salvador Dali, whose portrait you see here. But Dale was a trustee, and his collection, as you well know, extraordinary. During its first quarter century, the gallery had low tolerance for risk of any kind. Its serenity was meant to contrast with the daily drama of government, and it soon became part of a developing American rite of passage, the trip to the national capital, the, visitings, the visiting the memorials, the uh, museums, and the institutions of government uh, that had a symbolism resembling in some ways the religious pilgrimages of earlier centuries. Physically, Washington offered reassurance for the cult of the nation, and the gallery became deeply embedded in this ritual. Carter Brown understood the special relationship tying government with museums. This is the first picture uh, that I have of Carter, and he's on the right, uh, if there's <laughs> any question. He had been brought up in a household of great wealth and cultivation, but one that, in fact, held its own political ambitions. His father, John Nicholas Brown, when he succeeded to his fortune, was one of the richest men in America. He had lived and grown up in a Newport mansion that his mother had constructed by Ralph Adams Cram. He then moved to a great 18th century wooden house, which he restored on Benefit Street in Providence, the house that Carter grew up in, and then commissioned another very different one by modernist architect Richard Deutre, on Fisher's Island in Long Island Sound. John Nicholas Brown was a student of art history, classical, medieval, and modern. He did graduate work at Harvard. He became a noted collector, a patron of music, a preservationist, and a facilitator of critical institutions ranging from the Medieval Academy of America and the National Trust to the Museum of Modern Art. He was also a trustee of the Boston Symphony, a regent of the Smithsonian, a founding commissioner of the National Portrait Gallery, and one of the monument men who rescued Nazi pillaged art during World War II. John Nicholas Brown was a person of considerable accomplishment. He was idolized by his son Carter and transmitted to him a passion for art. Carter, as his last unfinished project, sought to create a joint biography of his father and his own autobiography, which he entitled Braided Lives. In private correspondence and in public statement alike, Carter exhibited deep respect and affection for his father. The Browns were a musical family. That is Carter, uh, second from the left here, his older brother Nicholas, his parents, and his uh, younger sister, uh, Angela, uh, who is not yet uh, performing, uh, but clearly <laughs> an interested uh, spectator. Um, Carter himself said he was not a, a good enough uh, a musician or a violinist to compete with his mother, uh, but he quickly discovered that he could talk. And from an early age, he demonstrated a precocious and precious talent for holding the floor. By the time he was six or seven, he was an able tour guide for visitors to Windshield, uh, the Neutra-built home on Fisher's Island that I just mentioned, and uh, something that he lectured on in his later years. Carter possessed a sense of performance that was almost palpable, and in later years would be good at singing, acting, and lecturing alike. These qualities, at least uh, the lecturing, uh, were indispensable for mid-20th century museum directors facing the challenges of dramatizing their institutional missions to a broad public, impressing would-be donors with their vision of the future, and persuading governing boards that they knew how to manage a budget. 
Born to privilege, Carter, in a strange way, was also self-made. Uh, perhaps a curious phrase to use for someone who began life with such advantages. But as one understands the deliberate way in which he decided what and where to study, which degrees to get, whose advice to seek, I think it's hard to avoid this phrase. He deliberately crafted a carefully designed course of training and accreditation that would equip him to run a great museum. At times, he compared his role to that of an orchestra conductor assigned the task of maintaining harmony within a group of accomplished musicians. For this, of course, he would need authority. So he decided, after much advice, while still an undergraduate, to pursue a broad course of cultural study. And here is Carter as just about beginning his undergraduate years, uh, a wonderful picture with a windshield in the background. He decided to pursue a broad course of cultural study rather than art history, concentrating in a selective Harvard program called Then and Now History and Literature. Afterward, he took a MBA, a Master's of Business Administration from the Harvard Business School and a European Wanderjahr. He really had no intention of becoming a scholar. He would publish little of academic significance during his lifetime beyond occasional introductions to catalogs and commentaries. But he needed, of course, to demonstrate familiarity with art history and connoisseurship and develop a recognized specialty. This would be in 17th century Dutch painting, an enthusiasm he developed while he was a Harvard undergraduate, nurtured in part by art historian Seymour Slive. That wanderjaar in Europe, um, in Italy, in France, uh, and uh, the Netherlands provided exposure to issues of authentication and conservation, and above all, observation, while the MBA brought practice with budget reading and management issues. Then came the final piece to the pattern, an MA from the Institute of Fine Arts at New York University. For a time, Carter thought of working toward a PhD. One advisor told him it was a union card for future employment, but future employment did not turn out to be a problem. <laughs> In the course of his years of training, Carter had contact with many of the greatest figures in art history and museum administration. Bernard Berenson, Francis Henry Taylor, and James Rohrerman, both directors of the Metropolitan, Charles Cunningham, a future director of the Art Institute of Chicago, Anthony Blunt, Kenneth Clark, on and on. All of them he knew and was corresponding with while in his teens and 20s. The Brown name, his father's name in particular, opened almost every door, and Carter was quickly spotted as a rising star in the museum world, offered while still at NYU, he said later, a position at Detroit's Institute of Arts. But the Midwest was not going to be his destination. And again, personal relationships were critical. John Walker, a neighbor of the Browns on Fisher's Island, a friend of John Nicholas Brown, was looking for a personal assistant, someone to perform the tasks that drew time away from policymaking and connoisseurship. There were celebrities to be greeted, press releases to be read, art competitions to be judged, government contacts to be maintained, and a range of other things, um, particularly in the hot summer months when John Walker repaired to Scotland uh, on an annual vacation. Carter, in those early years, was already exhibiting the ferocious energy that he would deploy during his later career. He managed to do all this to attend Washington parties and dinners, to cultivate friends in the diplomatic service. He always shows up in exactly the right spot, and you can see him here on the right in the Andre Malraux visit with Jackie Kennedy, and John Walker is greeting Malraux right here. His name appeared continually in the Washington newspapers of the 1960s. Uh, he often got photographed, gave interviews, out of all proportion, really, to his relatively modest post at the gallery, at least the post he took when he started. The details of Carter's apprenticeship were fascinating to me, particularly his rapid rise up the ladder 
from assistant to the director to assistant director to deputy director to director in seven or eight years. From the start, Carter took special interest in making the gallery more accessible and intelligible to visitors. And he was never hesitant to share his opinions. Uh, in On the Job, only a few months in 1961, he proposed to his director that they create what he called a new kind of catalog for the National Gallery, an alphabetized loose-leaf handbook listing everything on display. He was always attuned to new technology. This could be run off on the multi-lith equipment already owned. Some of you with long memories may recall those. Uh, not content merely to propose a guide, Carter uh, indicated his lifelong attention to aesthetic detail. He suggested the binders be in blue, uh, that the gallery seal be put in gold, and that to lend the document dignity, as he put it in his letter, the title page be printed in two colors. This guide, he told Walker, would allow the National Gallery to fulfill, and I quote, its responsibility for leadership among the museums of this country and the world. Thus, he was combining an obsession with minutiae, ambitious and highly competitive institutional goals, and a sensitivity to utilitarian needs. And these forecast an enormous cascade of proposals that he would make over the course of more than three decades. No aspect of the museum experience was too small to escape notice, and Brown was continually absorbed with controlling the size and the shape of galleries, their lighting, their sequencing, their relationship to the outside environment, to everything. But then there was much more to blooding a would-be museum director than speech writing and guidebook suggestions. Like many others in his profession, particularly his great rival, Tom Hoving at the Metropolitan, Brown enjoyed the hunt for the rare, unattainable masterpiece, the secret strategy that often underpinned securing a great work of art. John Walker allowed him one great adventure here, and I devote much of a chapter in Capital Culture to the National Gallery's pursuit of Leonardo da Vinci's Ginevra da Vinci. Backed by Alsa Mellon Bruce's money, she was, of course, Paul Mellon's sister and Andrew Mellon's daughter and the principal benefactor of the National Gallery during the 1960s. Backed by her funding, Walker had been involved in discussions with the Prince of Liechtenstein, the owner of Ginevra, for some years. But until the 1960s, nothing happened. Then in 1966, things heated up and purchase seemed a real possibility. I tell this story in some detail, partly because it's a fascinating story, partly because it was an important moment in Carter's apprenticeship, and partly because he considered it so significant and experience himself. In the tape transcripts that Carter was dictating in the months before his death, uh, Brown spent lots of time on this episode. Um, I think this is a cell phone that's been left up here, so um, I'm just going to put it aside. I think Carter would have been interested in the technological contrast. Um, uh, and uh, it's still ringing, so um, you'll have to... You'll have to ignore it. It's not my phone, so I won't take any responsibility. Um, I don't know how to turn it off. I, I, don't, I don't have one of those. Um, in any event, I tell the story because Carter, uh, 30 years later, uh, found it uh, an extraordinary experience. And in the tape transcripts that he dictated, he spent lots of time on this episode thinking that it might hold the seeds of a television special. Uh, Carter was always absorbed by media possibilities, and the glamour and the suspense of the story he thought would be riveting to a mass audience. In any event, now as assistant director, only 32, in December 1966, he was given the charge of coordinating the complicated issues surrounding this multi-million dollar purchase, and decades later, was able to reconstruct hour by hour, meal by meal, and wine by wine, uh, the uh, adventure he had. Uh, this was the romantic uh, home of, uh, of the painting in Liechtenstein. 
He shuttled back and forth across the Atlantic with side trips to London and Paris, uh, and this blend of high living, diplomacy, high finance, and connoisseurship was just irresistible to him. Again, a forecast of the kinds of personal drama uh, that he invested uh, in his professional goals. Carter was not yet a museum director. The decision about purchase was not his. The money was coming from someone he had not cultivated, but he felt a sense of ownership in the transaction, and uh, he was deeply involved in it. The negotiations, as you know, were successful. While the National Gallery did not release the final figure, as of this date, this was the most expensively purchased painting in history, privately purchased painting, and Carter was only, as I say, 32, a heady preparation for what would come. Carter acquitted himself well in this, but the real test of his abilities came the next year in 1967 when Paul Millen and his sister made the $20 million gift that would produce, 10 years later, the East Building that we are now in and would also consume another $80 million, by the way, uh, $80 million more than the original gift. But what was this addition to contain? What would it look like? What would it be called? Uh, all of that had to be worked through. Many possibilities were assessed, touring various research institutes, interviewing their directors, recommending plans for the Scholar Center that eventually became CASVA, thinking about an expanded library, above all, working toward the selection of IM Pay in July 1968 as the architect. All of this was part of Brown's charge. Not yet director, but in effect running much of the gallery already. The invitation to replace John Walker came months later in the spring of 1969, directly, of course, from Paul Mellon, the gallery president. The planning of this building offered an opportunity to rethink the entire philosophy of the National Gallery, its programs, its emphases, its connections to the capital as a whole, and its relationship to other major American uh, museums. The choice of pay who had recently designed the Everson Museum in Syracuse and the Des Moines Art Center and would soon be planning the Herbert Johnson Museum in Ithaca for Cornell. All this suggested that the gallery addition would not continue Washington's admittedly dreary record of institutional architecture, <laughs> epitomized by this structure, of course. Uh, but uh, there were others uh, in this litany uh, including um, the Museum of History and Technology, as it was called then, and soon to come, infamously caricatured by Ada Louise Huxtable, uh, the Kennedy Center. Uh, this Brown was uh, convinced they did not want to do. Pay, like Brown, loved to create user-friendly spaces at their best when filled with crowds of people. And this was a time when sociologists and urbanologists like Jane Jacobs and Irving Goffman and Oscar Newman, were developing new ways of looking at crowd culture and social density. This was the period that brought us restored, I should say, continually restored uh, railroad stations, uh, Hyatt hotels, um, the uh, renovated pension building in Washington, and the sh enclosed shopping mall, huge atria, offering escapes from everyday life. Brown, uh, a lifelong architectural buff, was incessant uh, and uh, uh, persistent in probing every possible detail of this new building. The number of bathrooms, the height of drinking fountains, uh, the design of the cafeteria, uh, the size of the galleries, the style of the furniture, Ironically enough, some of the uh, details, uh, which occasioned a great deal of study at the time, are now points of promotion for the gallery itself, as this advertisement in uh, the New York Times Magazine two weeks ago uh, indicated. The moving sidewalk itself, with this recent installation, is now one iconic symbol of public involvement. But it really was the glass and marble building itself that became crucial, uh, bringing transparency and new emphases. 
First of all, Brown, with a series of appointments and the planned fellowship center, raised the scholarly level of the staff, which before his directorship had not been major contributors to art historical research. Second, the new building showcased 20th century art, displaying modern masterpieces until then conspicuously absent, and initiating the first of several support groups providing money for purchases. And most of all, the East Building allowed the gallery to host major visiting shows, not a priority before Brown's arrival in Washington. These crowd-pleasing blockbusters of the 70s and 80s were the hallmark of his directing years and a platform on which to assert the National Gallery's capacity to compete with any major art museum in the country, particularly the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Brown's role in popularizing the international blockbuster lies at the heart of his directorial style. While it doesn't exhaust his contributions by any means, it merits some special commentary. The museum that literally pioneered with the promotion, merchandising, and ambitious loans associated with these shows was, of course, the Metropolitan in New York under Thomas Hoving. Hoving began his stormy 10-year directorship in March 1967, about the time that Carter was launching the survey that would eventuate in Casva. And Hoving quickly becomes a competitor, a nemesis, and the symbol for Carter of New York City's dominance in the art museum world, something that he would repeatedly challenge in the years ahead. Hoving shook up both the Metropolitan and the museum community, these uh, later uh, banners that you see here uh, after uh, Hoving's tenure, uh, but he is still remembered for uh, these banners and for instituting a series of dramatic shows. In fact, they became uh, somewhat iconic um, among uh, museum commentators. The Hoving shows, and some of you may remember the names in praise of kings of the great age of fresco, masterpieces of 50 centuries, these were unlike anything that New York had ever seen. The Metropolitan was jammed, the hours extended, the openings assumed something of the aura of Hollywood premieres. Carter learned from them, even as he moved beyond them. He would have more than 20 years to refine his style as compared to Coving's 10, and he could exploit the semi-official status of the National Gallery in their interest, much to the fury of the New Yorkers. The secretaries of state and treasury learned that their positions on the gallery board involved more than lip service. While they rarely attended meetings, they proved of immense help transporting and safeguarding foreign loans, as well as getting them in the first place. The 1970s were marked by a series of confrontations between the Met and the National Gallery over shows coming from China, Egypt, and East Germany. Met officials complained bitterly that after initiating contacts with foreign governments, they were outmaneuvered by the gallery, with Carter exploiting his capital links and making claims for Washington as the natural first site for important international shows. The Treasures of Tutankhamun tour of 1976-78, which dominates one chapter in this book, was a case in point. Hoving's anger about being upstaged was considerable, and the competition got so severe that in 1976, a celebrated conclave was hosted by David Rockefeller at his main home. Uh, Hoving, Brooke Astor, and Douglas Dillon represented the Met. Brown and Paul Mellon appeared for the National Gallery. Statements were issued in the careful language that international diplomats reserve for one another, and I, I quote the uh, final statement, the National Gallery's special status as the opening venue for international shows was in the best interests of the United States and its cultural life. That was uh, the treaty. Um, this was Paul Mellon's language. The Metropolitan didn't explicitly endorse the statement, but open warfare was avoided. Um, now, this kind of firepower suggested Carter's success in giving the Met fits although he did not always win the competition. One of the things that rankled him most 30 years later 
was his failure to purchase for the National Gallery the great Velazquez Juan de Pareja, which belonged to the Earls of Radnor and was hanging in, Rad- in Longford Castle. This took place in 1970. Carter has just started his directorship, and as I say, it was a painful memory 30 years after. Again, his antagonist was Hoving, whom Carter insisted had tapped his phone to find out... (laughs) This is true. Um, I'm not the tapping, but Carter's insistence that the tapping took place. According to Carter, they wanted desperately to find out what the National Gallery's bidding limit would be at the auction. Now, I won't go into the details here, although I go into some of them uh, in the book, but the Mets bid, the winning bid, of 2.2 million guineas just topped the gallery limit of 2.1 million guineas, and it walked away with the prize. Carter was angry and deeply disappointed. The irony, as he pointed out in the tapes that he dictated, was that the National Gallery had the money to spend. In fact, it had even more money if it wanted to spend it. The Metropolitan did not. The transaction proved something of a Trojan horse for Hoving. In order to raise the funds, he embarked on aggressive deaccessioning and, according to press critics, violated the terms of some bequests. Once New York newspapers got hold of this story, they ran endless repetitions of it, and the deaccessioning was one of the things, along with a number of others, like the projected Annenberg Center, which helped lead to Hoving's resignation in 1977. But that was years away, and in the meantime, Carter had to, effect, had to accept this defeat. His resentment of the Metropolitan and their complaints about National Gallery arrogance did not lessen over the years. He felt that critics in the New York Times, whom he admitted had more national influence than anyone else, insufficiently appreciated the cultural assets of Washington, and in internal memoranda he vented his frustration. This complex maneuvering brought another disappointment 20 years later in 1991, just as the National Gallery was celebrating its 50th anniversary. The courting of the Walter Annenbergs for their Impressionist and Post-Impressionist paintings was a multi-year effort and involved not only Brown but other museums, notably, of course, the Metropolitan, now headed by Philippe de Montebello. Carter was very eager to obtain this collection. For one thing, it would supplement and complement holdings that had come with Chester Dale's great gifts and Paul Mellon's as well. And for another, it would answer critics who complained he was investing too much energy into loan shows and not enough growing the permanent collection. Annenberg was generous with his money, but the collection was highly personal. He was very protective of its fate. Any recipient would promise to keep all the works on display, never lending or selling any of them. Eager to land the prize... Carter suggested to Annenberg that the National Gallery might administer a house museum in Palm Springs, in Sunnylands, keeping the paintings in situ. Then during summer months, when visitors to the desert were fewer, moved them to Washington, where they could be enjoyed by a larger number. Annenberg seemed to like the idea. Carter also appealed to him on the grounds of patriotism, using language he had used often when urging collectors to think of giving or leaving something to the National Gallery. Do it for the nation, he urged Annenberg, arguing that the location here made it a better destination than New York City. It was an old argument, in some ways more than a century old by this time, but in the end, it didn't work. The bigger stage was Fifth Avenue, and that's where the Annenbergs went. The National Gallery, however, took in plenty of art during Carter's directorship. He was director when the uh, agreement to acquire the Meyerhoff collection in Maryland was completed, which encompasses, of course, a group of highly important works. Uh, He was uh, accepting uh, the great gifts of the Mark Rothkos from uh, the Rothko Foundation. He uh, took in in Oldner's great gift of uh, drawings, and acquired some extraordinary things from Armand Hammer, not an easy accomplishment. And above all, it was during his directorship 
that Paul Mellon's stream of gifts swelled into a flood. Most of all, he participated in keeping Paul Mellon's support, attention, uh, and commitments during his directorship was uh, a major uh, goal for him, and in this he was successful. Most of all, he participated in the memorably uh, triumphant 50th anniversary drive that the gallery launched in the late 1980s, gathering art from hundreds of donors throughout the United States, sometimes to the consternation of local museum directors and curators who resented gallery poaching on their territory. Exploiting its prestige and visibility, gallery representatives urged collectors to give just one really great thing, and the response was impressive. In this crusade, Brown proved an effective salesman, brought in at crucial moments to seal the deal. The New York Times reporter covering the gallery entitled pieces on the campaign Hard Sell in Kid Gloves, and some collectors said they found it hard to distinguish between a donation and a robbery. (laughs) A spectacular exhibition and catalog commemorated the effort, which brought in, as I say, a stream of artworks. The Annenberg paintings would have sealed all this, but that was not to be. But again, it was the temporary exhibitions and their installation design that shaped Brown's years at the gallery, and I want to talk about them as I end. From the start, Brown had been drawn to the visitor experience, as I said earlier, believing that exhibitions should have narratives, storylines to pull viewers along. They were meant to be dramatic and, if possible, suspenseful. A temporary exhibition was an opportunity to produce an event, he told one interviewer. When he took over in 1969, little enlivened the few visiting exhibitions being hosted. The rather awkward spaces available in the West Building made advanced thinking difficult. Lighting was poor, the walls mouse gray, and stayed that way. Things would soon change. Carter's first year, he hired an outsider from New York to advise on installing a show on African art. False walls and lighting were added. Brown was dissatisfied with the results, but it was a start. Real progress, and indeed revolution, came when he discovered the next year the amazing talents of a staff member, Guyard Ravenel, known around the gallery as Gill, a new research associate with a special interest in printmaking. But Ravenel proved far more than that. Starting in 1971 with a show of Paul Mellon's British art, He began a transformative career at the gallery, reworking old spaces, painting walls, first in the West Building, then in the East, until a recognizable gallery installation style became internationally known. And I show you one of the early exhibitions here. Carter's annual reports not only listed the year's exhibitions, but he talked about their installation. He tried to explain how argument interpretation, and presentation fit together. And so far as I can tell, no other major American museum attempted this kind of commentary. For more than 20 years, and ultimately hundreds of exhibitions, Ravenel and the installation and design department that Brown formed around him created a long string of highly praised exhibitions, some of them very expensive and time-consuming to produce. More than that, Ravenel himself, recalled variously as charismatic, charming, terrifying, authoritarian, immensely gifted, became a major voice on the committee that selected gallery shows. The relationship between Brown and Ravenel was highly charged. There were complaints uh, about uh, the uh, level of Ravenel's power, but each needed one another. Their partnership was perhaps the most decisive feature of the 23-year Brown directorship, in my judgment, giving rise to fabled shows like A Rodin Rediscovered and The Art of Aztec Mexico, and perhaps the climax of all, which many here will remember, Treasure Houses of Britain, which I devote an entire chapter to. And Treasure Houses typified the breed of show. Supported by a multi-million dollar grant from Ford, 
Personally nurtured by Brown, it took five years to plan, consumed 35,000 square feet, and included extraordinary treasures. Um, it attracted 990,000 attendees in its 12-week stay. And here you see the uh, principal figures involved in the show with Carter, of course, on the right. Uh, great pains were taken uh, to uh, preparing this installation. Uh, it was, as I say, enormously expensive, and it attracted some interesting visitors. Um, in fact, getting the Prince and Princess of Wales was a great coup uh, for Carter, adding to press excitement. The noble owners, the country house owners of all this art, dukes, earls, baronets, and squires, descended on Washington in their exotic plumage uh, and regaled the press uh, with uh, wonderful stories. One weekend, while the show was on, the gallery as a whole supposedly attracted 220,000 visitors in three days, a record, although, of course, only a small number of them managed uh, to see treasure houses. This was Downton Abbey, of course, before the fact. Um, now, much of capital culture is about the gestation, the character, and the reception of such shows, which drew millions to the gallery and achieved extraordinary press coverage. Cooperation between uh, the curators and Ravenel was, of course, of fundamental importance. They worked things out for the most part. But the financing, many of the loans, the larger intellectual justification were left in Brown's hands. If one likens these events to movies, and Carter, I think, would have accepted the analogy, he was both producer and director, responsible for budgets that could be six to eight million dollars in 1980s dollars. While corporate support was vital to these shows, just as significant was obtaining the trophy loans. And Capital Culture describes the lengths that Carter went to, the pressures he applied to get from private owners, museums, galleries, churches, monasteries, and other owners their prized possessions. The quest could be protracted and ruthless, and Carter was prepared to invoke anything social connections, family, the power of the United States government, religious principles, nationalist rivalries, special publicity in order to get what he wanted. He needed special persuasion when it came to fragile objects like panel paintings. There are many examples to choose from among, but the most protracted quest, perhaps, was for the great da Vinci lady with an ermine hanging in a museum in Krakow, Poland. Carter considered it key to his last great exhibition at the gallery, circa 1492, commemorating, of course, the 500th anniversary of the Columbian voyages. To obtain this painting against the wishes of the museum staff and director, and a mass resignation was announced in Krakow, Carter deployed several ambassadors, the Secretary of State, the Presidents of Poland and the United States, and attempted to get the support of Pope John Paul. <laughs> There's nothing in the archives that indicates John Paul's response to Carter's letter. Uh, all I have is uh, the request. He fought a last-minute refusal from the Polish government, but flew to Warsaw in a 24-hour whirlwind trip and rescued the loan. It's interesting to note, by the way, that since her 1991 visit here, the lady with an ermine has made a series of trips abroad and apparently is none the worse for wear. In any event, this was Brown's last great National Gallery show, although he would do one more astonishing exhibition for the High Museum in Atlanta in connection with the 1996 Olympic Games. This is four years after retirement. Rings was built around five emotions, mirroring the five rings of the Olympics, and it brought down on Carter's head an enormous wave of critical disapproval, principally from unsympathetic art historians. Whatever one thought of the show, it fit Brown's lifelong interest in breaking down the usual boundaries of museum exhibitions and reaching ordinary visitors on some basic emotional level. Visitor testimony suggests that he succeeded in doing that in Atlanta, but only by assembling a strangely assorted group of masterpieces 
that came close, some critics insisted, to pandering to the emotions rather than arousing them. Rings was his last great major experiment, and I suspect the reaction hurt Carter more than he wanted to admit. In correspondence, he expressed resentment at uh, what he thought were unfair attacks. He was right to feel sensitive because Rings represents something of a culmination to his exhibition career, his magical skill at assembling treasures from all over the world and attracting crowds to see them. And it was indeed miraculous, even after leaving his position at the gallery, how Brown was able to persuade, cajole, and coax institutions across the world to yield up great things. In the end, evaluating Carter Brown's impact on the museum world remains a challenge. It was clear that his energy and his vision and uh, transformed the museum here fundamentally. Nationally, the uh, impact has been complex. The international movement of masterpieces with its accompanying risks to their physical well-being remains, of course, a subject of debate as great temporary art shows retain their appeal. The spiraling costs of impressive new building wings with their maintenance needs challenge museums which don't have the safety net of federal support. Corporate subsidies for great shows are no longer a novelty, and the size of the grants has diminished as the budgets have risen. And there are those today who find the more aggressive stance of art museums toward the visitor experience to be distracting. None of this, of course, began with Carter Brown. Efforts to promote exhibitions, to publicize museums, to build editions, and to entice audiences go back generations. But Carter Brown fully understood his moment. The visibility of his position, the scale and number of the shows that he helped initiate or sustain, the interlaced connections with government officials and corporate executives, the high-stakes diplomacy, the risk-taking, and the personal drama brought to Art Museum Matters, all of which I try to elaborate on in this book, make his Washington tenure truly consequential for art museums in this country and abroad. Along with Tom Hoving, he created a category of the celebrity director, which remains a touchstone for successors. And he created a management style, which, with all its risks, remains to many inspiring and memorable a full generation later. Thank you very much. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.